0: Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guests are Bonnie J. Adario and John Land, and they are co-authors of the the book, The Living Room, A Lung Cancer Community of Courage. The Living Room, which draws its name from a virtual support group live-streamed internationally Once a Month by Bonnie's Foundation, tells the stories of 20 lung cancer patients who have bravely fought the disease and found ways to thrive, not just to survive. Bonnie Adario is a survivor of stage 3B lung cancer for more than 17 years and is co-founder and chair of the GoTo Foundation for Lung Cancer. A determined activist on behalf of patients suffering from the disease, Bai has built an extraordinary global network of fellow activists, patients, doctors, oncologists, researchers, and caregivers. A thriving and ever-growing community devoted to committing to advocating on behalf of those patients and families affected by the disease. John Land is the USA. Uh, today best-selling author of approximately 55 books. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, But uh, anyway, those titles include 10 titles in the critically acclaimed Caitlin Strong series, and most recently, Don has taken over the Murder, She Wrote book series based on the hit CBS TV show starring Angela Lansbury. For more information about Bonnie and the Foundation, you can visit the website go to foundation.org and that's go and the number two foundation.org and for more information about john you can visit his website which is johnlandbooks.com and that's j-o-n land books.com so welcome to the show bonnie and john thank you robert I'm, I'm happy to, ha- to have you both here and and um talk about this. I love um talking with co-authors and, and finding out the stories behind collaboration and you know I, th- I think it's just one of the um one of the best things that people can do <laughs> with, with um, another person who's co-author a book. So we'll, we'll be talking about that in a little bit. But let's start with Bonnie. Um I'm and start with, you know, Cancer. I mean, that was that pivotal time um, in your life that kind of, you know, led you on. I'm sure a, a direction that you weren't attending. Um, but can you tell us um, a little bit about your experience? You know, what what was that time like when you just first heard the words
1: that you had cancer? Well, you know, regardless of, of you know what kind of cancer anybody uh, gets, the words "you have cancer." are always overwhelming and frightening, you know, for the most part. And, you know, especially for lung cancer, because it's, it's the biggest cancer. Uh, it kills more people than, the, than, than breast, colon, and prostate combined, uh, but it gets the least attention. Uh, and I, like everybody else, you know, immediately uh, went into the website to see what I could find out about this disease. When I started uh, my chemotherapy and my treatment, and I was just, I was just amazed at the fact that there was very little information about lung cancer, and what you could find was dire and scary, and you know it wasn't, um, it wasn't enlightening at all. And I made a promise to myself, you know, the day they plugged in the, um, the needle to give me chemotherapy i uh that if I made it through the knot hole, I would do something to change the status and the survival rate of lung cancer and I did.
0: yeah well so
2: you
0: certainly we had yeah, <laughs> you we have done that yeah, so now you you were diagnosed with stage three lung cancer what 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 you know what was the prognosis you know what did various doctors say? I'm sure you probably got more than one um
1: right kind of um, um
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I, I got more than one um uh one uh, recommendation and the first one told me basically, uh, you know, there's nothing we can do for you. Just, you know, go home and take care of your affairs and um you know, we'll we'll just move on. And and of course you, you just you just can't tell someone there's nothing that, that they can do for you and I thought, Well, certainly there's someone out there that will do something for me. So uh, I went on that journey, you know, looking for uh, someone that would have a different story. So I found myself up at UCSF, uh, that's University of California, at San Francisco, and I found this amazing um, surgeon up there. And he said to me, he said, after he examined me and, you know, looked at the prognosis that, that, that I got from several other people, and he said, Bonnie, what do you, what do you want from me? And I said, well, here's what I want. I don't, if I'm not, well, what will what, I what to think about my words? If I'm going to die from this disease, I don't want it to be because I did nothing. I want you to throw everything you have at me. I don't care how toxic it is. I will take it, and we'll both see what we can do. And he agreed, and off we went. And, and I had chemotherapy every every Friday. For nine weeks, and I had that radiation Monday through Friday for the same nine weeks, and it, it took its toll on me. But here I am today.
0: Yeah, that, that's an amazing, um, amazing story. And in, in how, how long has it been since that period? Has it, it been?
1: It's it's been seventeen years, and I did have surgery years. after all of that, after all of that chemotherapy, and I. I lost my left lung and um, the one vocal cord kind of like was a, a disaster not a disaster but a side sidebar from the surgery. And many other things happened. I had pulmonary embolisms and, you know, a necrosis and if if it was if anybody could get it I got it. But, you know, still, I, still there was no way I was giving up. No way. <laughs>
0: A fighter for sure. um my goodness well um so now when it, after this- after the treatment that that you you went through can, is is that when you decided to start the um, how, how did you kind of move into advocacy well, for it, it was it was
1: it was very interesting uh you know because i I, I took a while, you know, to actually recover from, from all that craziness. And But my my surgeon, who, who did all this wonderful work on me, um, asked me to be on his advisory board up there in the lung program. And I said, absolutely. So I, I found myself, you know, researching everything I could about lung cancer, talking to various different patients, working on that ad board, and, um, you know, working through the hospital and talking to various different people, because there's so many people involved, not just the surgeon. Surgeon, there was a pul- pulmonology is involved and respiratory work is, done, you know, involved. A lot of things to learn. And I just got so into it. I went immediately mm. to my lawyer's office and filed for a 501c3, which is a not-for-profit status. And um Then gathered in two two girlfriends that were just amazing, that agreed to help me. And between the three of us, we had a gala, I think it was probably about eight months later. We had it at City Hall in San Francisco, and we had, I think, like 700 people there. And um, this one guest speaker, very, very well-known lung cancer oncologist, stood up on the stage and she said, I never thought I would ever see the day that we got 700 people all in one room for lung cancer. And, Mm -hmm. um, and the rest is, you know, we just kept moving on (laughs) on and on and on and on and created one program after another. And now we do research and programs and um, teaching, teaching patients when they're first diagnosed, what to look for and what to do. How to speak to the physician, all the things I had no clue how to do way back when.
0: Yeah, now, um, and I'm sure part of the education is the. Do you do you feel that the um, uh, the idea of lung cancer um, being associated incorrectly as as, as a, a smoker's you know strictly a, a smoker's disease? Um, can you well, tell us a little bit about about that? Um, you know how that fits in, smokers and non-smokers fits in to lung cancer.
1: Yes, yes, it um, it, uh, it it's sad. It's sad, and and it's it's the sole reason that lung cancer gets so little research right. money, even from the government. You know, the NCI and the NIH, et cetera. We're on the we're on the bottom of the research funding program in Washington D.C. And it's strictly because even they, as medical people and people that know better, uh, you know, we shouldn't discriminate against any cancer patient, let alone, you know, an entire group of patients. And it's just not true. And it's very interesting because the more people are not smoking now, uh, the um, uh, the rate of lung cancer is still still kind of staying out there. And not dropping along with the smoking, um, it's just uh, uh, it's just been such a such a battle, you know, in mm-hmm. in fighting for research and doing new new uh, new research and collaborating with people and doing all the things we do every day. That did you smoke? And I get into conversations <laughs> with people, and I say, does it matter if I smoked or not? You know, would would you would you not want to? See me get care if I smoked, and you know it—it it, it opens up the door for great conversations. Honestly, and it changes people's minds.
0: Well, I was going to say, you know, you know those kinds of that kind of um, thought and judgment, you know, um, about smokers sure. versus not smoking and and, and disease yeah. is—it's um, just—it's um, amazing. But I, but I can see, you know, that that is would be one. You know, huge obstacle when when it comes to um, funding and, and perception. So I, I guess
1: that, it, it, uh, exactly I'm sorry. I guess the solution
0: the, is education.
1: It, the solution is education because. You know, the stigma with lung cancer is similar to mental health, to AIDS, and and to other things, even diabetes. You know, people think, well, you don't need to, you you shouldn't have diabetes. It's just really because you overeat. You know, and, and, you know, there's little something for everyone out there. But I'll tell you a little story that really kind of brings it all home. There was this lovely lady that we were helping, you know, and and. She said to me, Bonnie, one day, she goes, Bonnie, I have to tell you a secret. I said, what's that? And she said, I tell people I have breast cancer. And I said, oh, my goodness, why do you do that? And she said, I don't want to feel ashamed. And I don't want them to ask me if I smoked and and that, well, you must have smoked and you must have brought it on yourself. So I just have no room for empathy here. And And then she said... To me, I know, and you know, it's very interesting. I've never had a cigarette in my life. My parents didn't smoke. I've never been around it, but smoking is killing me. And I said to her, I said, "Well, what do you mean by that?" She said, "The stigma about smoking is killing me, and I've never touched a cigarette in my life." Mm. Kind of wow. brings it all home. Huh? <laughs> it,
0: sure, it sure does. Yeah, it, it does, and um, in, you even feel the need to um, to hide it is, uh, just says a lot, right. you know, that um, that it couldn't, couldn't be up front.
1: Exactly. Well, you know, even in fact, it's very interesting. I wrote a little op-ed one time, just a little story, and it was titled, Where are the Casseroles? You know, because usually when somebody, you know, has a life-threatening disease, you know, all the neighbors, you know, pull together and, and there's casseroles on your porch and, You know, you don't have to worry about those things because you've got all these people helping you, and that hasn't always been uh, the case for people with lung cancer.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. Hopefully, we can that can that can change. Um, Now, the yeah. Now, now the the title of the book is "The Living," so a a lung cancer community, of course. So, can you tell us a little bit about the virtual Living room.
2: Yes,
1: yes. This is this is my favorite part of telling this whole story. I was asked to go to a major academic um, hospital to speak at their support group. And I was honored and, of course, you know, got all dressed up. And, and I went and I walked into this room and the room was gray. And there were no windows in the room. And there was a long gray table, oblong uh, table and folding chairs, and gray walls, and the first thing I thought when I got in there was that there is no hope in this room at all. These people have come here to die they haven 't come here for you know um, for information that 's going to make them feel positive or or anything like that. So I went back to work the next day and I, I got the team all put together and I said, you guys are going to kill me, but we're going to start a new project. And of course, you know, their eyes are all rolling around in their heads and they're going, <laughs> we haven't got time to start a new project. And I said, Oh no, we have to start this one. So I told them what happened at that support group. And then I said, and so we're going to start a support group, but it's going to be an educational group. We're going to invite key opinion leaders once a month to this support group. and, that key opinion leader is going to answer all their questions and, you know, speak about, you know, new things happening and give them hope, um, uh, you know, to, to, you know, encourage them. And we're going to call it the living room and uh, we're going to have food. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to dress up this entire big room we have here with warm sofas and chairs and people are going to come in here and they're not going to be dying. They're going to come in here and they're going to start living. Mm-hmm. So we call the program, the living room. And when I decided to write this book, the title wasn't even a question mark. It's we're going to call it. The living
0: room.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree.
0: So, John, let's bring John into the, the discussion here. So welcome, John. You know, thank Hi, you for Robert. joining us. <laughs> um, now, as as I um, did the introduction, I mentioned um, approximately 55 books uh, as an yeah. author. Um, what else do you do in life?
2: <laughs> I mean, that's, just, <laughs> that's an amazing, amazing number of books. Well, and I'm only 26. I mean, I mean, who would have thought? I mean, nah, that's, not, there, that's a little bit go. of a lie. But, you know, here, here's the thing that, that, uh, that links them. Um, I write nonfiction and I write fiction. The vast bulk of my work are thrillers, fiction, stuff I make up. But the amazing thing about the stories in the living room, the profiles of these 21 exceptional human beings, including Bonnie, who's, who is profiled in the living room as well, in the book we're talking about, But here's the connection between my fiction and my nonfiction, particularly exemplified and personified by The Living Room. I write about heroes. All my books, all my series are defined by the actions of a hero. When you write series fiction, and most mystery and thrillers are part of a series, it's the hero that keeps people coming back because they're the driving force. Meeting the 21 people that we profile in the living room, and letting the book be um, their stories. Not our stories, except for Bonnie's, but their stories, in their own words, pretty much, together with Bonnie's reactions um, to the interviews. Meeting these people, getting to know them, these are heroes. No, they haven't saved the world they haven't they don't know they may not know how to fire every gun on the planet like a lot of my thriller heroes but what they have done is even more exceptional even more inspirational because these are just everyday people who by this mac truck called lung cancer and many of them were hit 15 years ago 10 years ago 5 years ago and they're still here they're still fighting Um, And I think about these people, and they're an exceptional group of human beings, period, even before you get to lung cancer, which has become the dominant thing in in their lives. And yet the life goes on. I think of a man like Jim Pantelis from Michigan, who received the first infusion of chemo for his lung cancer on the very day His first daughter was born a quadriplegic, you know, uh, due to brain damage. Unbelievable. But when we talked, the thing that Jim was most proud of, the thing that had him most excited after living with lung cancer for 10 years was the fact they had just purchased an eye reader for Stella, his oldest daughter. So Stella would be able to say yes and no with her eyes and the machine would interpret it. The machine's amazing. It was developed for ALS patients. Now this is a man who's been through so much. So much heartache. So much pain. And what he wanted to talk about more than anything was being able for the first time in 15 years to communicate with his daughter. Because what I found in this book Robert, and this is crucial. I don't even know if I've said this to Bonnie. Is the beautiful the, contrib- the strength of humanity of common humanity jim pantelis the same gentleman would talk about coming home from chemo and radiation in the winter and his snow and his driveway would be plowed and his walk would be shoveled or coming home from a treatment in the summer and his lawn would be mowed a lot of times he never knew who did either Someone, a neighbor, a friend, someone who knew what he was going through, just did it. It's a celebration, and that's what this book is. It's a celebration of the appreciation of life, of survival, of these people who have faced, who face, um, who have faced a death sentence, looked it right in the eye and faced it down, and, but they have to fight every day to keep winning that fight. They have to fight every day to keep winning that battle, keep winning that war and they do so with their heads held high in a way that is encouraging and inspirational to all of us
1: yeah
0: you know when you realize uh, you know the everyday nature you know of of the people profiled you know that um it's one of those things where um if the first, if the reader hasn't been you know touched by lung cancer you know in their immediate um family, but that there will certainly have been someone, you know, nearby that have been. So the, the stories are, make it easily easy to, um, to relate to. Relate. Um, so, yeah. So, um, John, how did you connect with Bonnie for this project?
2: I had done a book with uh, Bonnie's husband's, Tony's cousin, um, a, a man named Dana Dario. It was a narrative memoir about Dana Dario's uh, career in the DEA in all forms, and his own struggles fighting the opioid crisis, the war on drugs, after losing his own son to opioid, to an opioid overdose. So when he found out that Bonnie was interested in doing a book, um, he asked me to talk to her and see if there might be a fit if I had any ideas. And in our first conversation, Bonnie told me about a number of the people of uh, who were. Ultimately, profiled that she ultimate, that we that she and I ultimately interviewed, and in my mind, I saw this book a Studs Terkel like collection of interviews, profile interviews, with people letting their own letting them tell their stories in their own words, letting getting to know them, getting to meet them. So anyone who reads the book can take the lessons can learn the lessons that they have learned the hard way. And come up with a new appreciation for, for life that most of us, Robert, take for granted. Um, and that's the wonderful thing, another thing that connects these 21 wonderful heroes. They take nothing for granted. Everything, you know, when they see the sunrise, they appreciate it. And then when they see the sunset, you know, over the mountains or over the water, they appreciate it. Because they value life in a way all of us should value life. And when I think of the subtitle, which is Bonnie's subtitle, she came up with it. We came up with almost everything together. But the (laughs) subtitle is Mm -hmm. all her. A living room, a a lung cancer community of courage. Nothing says better who the, the courage, but also the sense of community.
0: Yeah, you know that shared common experience um, it, um, it has to be a very um, bonding. You know, I mean, so much can be said without being said in a way. You know, when it comes to you know describing the experience or, or communicating with others about the experience.
2: Absolutely. And then,
1: you know, I would just I would just add about that. Uh, you know, the room itself, when the people gather, they have all really become friends. And uh, we had to go to virtual Zoom meetings during COVID. And they're all now still saying, when, are we, when can we come back? You know, when can we actually come back and sit and catch up and, you know, really be with our people? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's such a big part of their lives.
0: Yeah, I I bet. So um, we're about halfway through the show. I want to take uh, just a quick break, um, and I do want to invite listeners, if you would like to call in and ask Bonnie and or John any questions, you can call in at 619-789-4359. And for those listening live in the chat room, if you have any questions, feel free to pose them there. Um, and then when we come back um, from the break, I want to talk just um, a little bit um, with you, Bonnie, first about that uh, the virtual living room, you know, in, in the community and giving information for people on how to, to, uh, to take advantage of that,
1: okay? Okay, great. Thank you.
0: Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guests are Bonnie J. Adario and John Land, and we are talking about the book that they co-authored, The Living Room, A Lung Cancer Community of Courage. Um, again, for more information about Bonnie and, and the book and, and the foundation, you can go to go2foundation.org, to and that's G-O, the number two, org, and then for more info, information about john you can visit his website which is johnlandbooks.com and it's j-o-n landbooks.com uh-huh. okay we're back everyone i think we got that all covered <laughs> So, so um, Bonnie, I, I, I really want to, since we're halfway through the show, I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the stories and, and, and um, you know, just other topics about the, um, lung cancer. But um, I think one of the things that you um, that is a wonderful um, resources is that Go To Foundation in, in the living room. So for listeners out there, can you explain to them what's available? You know, as far as um, the what the foundation offers in that um, virtual living room
1: absolutely absolutely and um uh it 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 was a virtual living room during covid, but this is a this is a, a live living room once a month that we have and people come from all over we have one lady that drives in from San Diego, which is quite a long ways from San Diego and where we are in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. But we bring in a key opinion leader, and that's, that could be an oncologist. It could be a radiation oncologist. It could be a pulmonologist. It could be somebody that um, is, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, teaching about how to stay healthy while you're, while you're taking some of these drugs. Uh, it's it's a great, great, great evening. We, we serve food because people are under the impression that when people have life-threatening diseases, they get to stay home. But they don't. They have to work. <laughs> they have to work, and they have to keep going. So we treat them like kings and queens. They walk in, and, you know, if there's anything we can do for them, we do it. And then they love to listen. But we live stream the, the whole program via YouTube and FaceTime live around the world. And how that came about was we had so many people lined up outside to come in originally. We couldn't fit everybody there. We were sitting around one day, you know, just kind of chatting about how can we get more of these living rooms in other zip codes. And there's one girl that works for us. Who loves to do political interviews at night? Said, "Well, we'll just invite the television station in the local television station, and they'll they'll put it on YouTube and they'll send it out all over." And I, I of course, know nothing about that, so I said, "Well, you know what? <laughs> if you say it'll work, let's do it." So we did it. We are still doing it, and we have reached 143 countries. And I recently wow. got a second opinion from a, a young girl in Prague who called our office because she saw one of the living rooms one night and said she needed a second opinion for her mom. And I said, okay,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: give me your number. I'll call you tomorrow. So I called the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer in Washington, D.C. And I said, okay, guys, who have we got in frog? I have a, have a, a young girl here that needs a second opinion for her mom and they gave me the name of a doctor. His name is Dr. Rafal. If you're listening, thank you. Bless you. He, um, mm-hmm. I called him, and I said, you probably don't know who I am. And he said, so funny, I, I know who you are. I, was, I, I thought, okay, good. <laughs> I said, now I need a favor. And I said, I need to get a, a second opinion for this young girl's mother. He gave me his personal phone number and said, have her call me ASAP. So we got a yeah. second opinion. For a patient in Prague in under twenty four hours, that was pretty good so that's, that's that is, really <laughs> <was living here.
0: laughs> there you go well that's darn good. that's and that's a wonderful example of, of uh, the possibilities that uh right. the platform has yeah um right. exactly. so um yeah, so now I want to go back to John for one, one, another one talk about the book. So, John, you went through and you did the interviews with these people. Were there more than 21 individuals
2: that you interviewed? And if so, how did you choose what to include and what's not? <laughs> that, that's a great question. And, and, you know, it was a group effort. It, it was really a team effort with Bonnie and I because Bonnie mm-hmm. is the one who knew these people very, very well. So it was it was really her and I together, um, and it's a no one's ever asked something ever asked me that before. And the answer is none. The, every interview we did is in the book. It would have been it would ha, it wouldn't have been fair to have interviewed someone, right. um, you know, and not have included their story. And I'll go you one better of in the twenty one profiles. Um, inevitably there was going to be some heartache and we lost one of the people we profiled between the time we interviewed him and the book came out, which was Mm. over, over a year. Um, his name was Don Stranahan. He was a wonderful man. And uh, Bonnie, I don't think we ever even considered taking the chapter out because it would have been an insult to Don because his story is every bit as relevant. Right, Bonnie?
1: Exactly. And and, you know, everybody knows, I mean, we are all going to die sooner or later, you know, all of us, whether we have lung cancer or whether we don't. We just don't know how or when. And Don was such a friend to all of the patients that, that are involved in our foundation that it would really would have been a really negative thing to pretend he didn't exist, you know, and just...
0: Yeah, right.
1: You know, that wouldn't have worked. And, and everybody says, thank you for putting Dawn in the book, you know. So uh, we were we were all a little bit concerned about that, you know, because we're trying to, you know, show how, how positive lung cancer is these days. But it worked out great. It worked out absolutely well. You wonderful.
2: know, Robert, on that same subject, two things stand out. One is the incredible capacity of these lung cancer these advanced lung cancer survivors, these heroes to be open willing and and will, who who go out of their way to help others who are experiencing the same thing they are to be a resource to be a friend to be someone to you name it they'll do it but here's the other thing and this came out in, in one in a couple of the interviews that we did that when you have a disease that is life threatening and and threatens, you know, basically, you may not live as long as everybody else. I say may because so many of these people are defying the odds and there are so many wonderful treatments that exist now and that are on the horizon even more on the way. Um, But one of them compared the way they live to the way a dog lives, thinking about dog years, that dogs don't live as long. Everything they do is more intense because they have to enjoy. They enjoy every moment more, almost like they know, They're not going to live as long. And the people profiled in this book have that same attitude. Like I said before, the things they appreciate more, the things they value more. Um, One person profiled, Michael McCarty. Um, When I asked him his three wishes for the future, he only had one, to see his kids graduate high school. That was the only thing, that was his wish for the future, to see his group, his kids graduate high school something the rest of us take for granted but not someone who's been through what they look at life through a different set of lenses than we do and i think if all of us could look at life through the same set of lenses that these these survivors look at life at we'd all be a lot better off than we are
0: yeah there uh, there is a just um Different perspective, you know, of of life and priorities. Different set of priorities.
2: Great way to exactly, exactly. Yeah,
1: Uh, you know, and and, you know, we all we all know in the back of our minds that you know no one gets to live you know forever. But when you have a a terminal disease, you know the odds are that you're going to go a lot sooner. But you know what John said is oh so true these patient patients have become family, you know, even though we haven't met all of them because you know one of the one of the girls in the book, um Lisa Briggs, is from Australia, and we had a we were conducting a clinical trial that she was participating in uh, internationally and it required a blood draw and her country wouldn't let didn't approve of the container we were using and so wouldn't let wouldn't ship the blood uh, to the U S do you know what she did? She got her husband and her kids on an airplane, came out here to San Francisco. We sent a phlebotomist up to her room, (laughs) drew the blood and then they all went to Disneyland. (laughs) Isn't that a great story?
0: That is funny. That that's great. Yeah, um, I had uh, re- regarding the, the gentleman who passed on before the publication a couple years ago. I did a book um, on caregivers. You know, the heart and soul caregiving, and and it was just one of these things where. Oh. It ended up being included in my mother's story about my mother from my sister and that kind of very much the same in, in the sense of, but just from a caregiver standpoint. And um, I, there was a woman um, from Costa Rica, and uh, she was an um, herbalist. Um, her name was uh, Milana Ashley, and she had a husband, Odin, who was um, uh confined to a wheelchair and she anyway she did everything she could to you know take care of him and then take care of herself you know being very aware of the importance of balance and peace and anyway I had the same thing happen you know and her big fear was not being around for her husband and that ended up happening you know she ended up passing on before he did and it was from the time that i had you know gotten her story to the time it was published and and you you have that um recognition that just you know so much can happen you know in in such a short period of time
2: absolutely and um you know you make me think about the way about these, you know, these individuals and how life throws, them, throws curveballs at all of us. In the case of Evie Schiffman, who is profiled, she was diagnosed with lung cancer about a year after her husband, Neil, died of lung cancer, husband and wife. Neither one of them smokers, mm-hmm. both of them. Um, Laura Blair, diagnosed with lung cancer as a, as a young woman um, with three kids, not a smoker, a nurse, um, diagnosed with stage four lung cancer at the same time her husband was being treated for a different kind of cancer that now ultimately he passed to that cancer she is still alive today um, but when they talk mm-hmm. about life piling on that's the other thing that emerges what bonnie said before is so true life goes on for lung cancer survivors and patients. They have to go to work every day. They have to pay the bills. They have families. They, they have responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And they have to do everything they did before, along with being treated for stage 4 lung cancer. Um, again, it's humbling to look at what, what, what upsets me in the course of a regular day compared to what, compared to what these people are dealing with. Yeah. And, very and much. Go ahead.
1: One of the things we've done too is to the way we chose the people that are in the book was to, you know, they're on different therapies, they're different ages, different yes. genders, different ethnicity. We tried to we tried to get enough people with enough differences so everybody that mm-hmm. picks up the book and reads it will find themselves in there somewhere somehow.
2: Yeah. Such a great point, Robert. Of, yeah, yeah, i, and, sorry, no, I was going
0: to say, you know, go ahead, go
2: ahead, Don. No, I was going to say it's a it's a cautionary tale, in the sense that mm. an, an an NCAA All American quality athlete like Jill Costello, who was profiled in Sports Illustrated, we interviewed her parents. Obviously, we we she passed at the age of only 21 shortly after graduating UCal Berkeley. I mean. Lung cancer for a 21-year-old girl who never smoked. So it's a cautionary tale for people in the sense that lung cancer is not an old person's disease, it's not just a woman's disease, and it's not just a smoker's disease. And So I'm sorry I cut you off.
0: No, no, that's great. I mean, I am glad that you pointed that out. I mean, because those are the three... Areas who were, were myths, you mythology. Who yes. doesn't? You know, yeah, mythology. Who gets affected? Now, um, Bonnie, are there more people, younger people, being diagnosed with lung cancer in recent years than before, or or is it yes. just maybe being reported? No. Okay, so do you, no. do you have any ideas of why right. you think that may be?
1: Well, it's interesting you ask that question. We have just launched what you call an epidemiology study, and that's to find out why these young people, what is different about their lives? What is different in 2021 than 2003 when I was diagnosed? Because when I was diagnosed in 2003, young people like this were not getting lung cancer. Anywhere, anyhow, anyway, yeah. and they don't fit the profile. They're never smokers. They're, they're very athletic, and if they're not college athletes, they're, um, they're spinners or runners and that kind of thing. They are the complete antithesis of what you think someone looks like that has lung cancer. So, you know, when you, when you look at, you know, the things that are very, very different today, take hormones, for instance. When you're very athletic, your hormones get very mixed up. But you look at young girls now are taking hormones, you know, when they're 14, 13 and 14 years old, and they're staying on them, you know, much longer than women of my generation. And, and uh, then they're having trouble um, having children. You know, so hormones could be an issue. HPV could be an issue. There's a lot of things, but the study is going to find out why. But, and, and it's um, a national study done everywhere. And we've asked, I think, over 250 questions in the survey for the study. So we'll, we'll get a lot of information. We may not get the exact answer, but we'll get enough information that can lead to trials to, to make great change.
0: Well, that's good. That's good that it's you know being um, looked at, you know, and and trying to. But they're they're just so. I mean, there are just so many variables, you know, when you think about uh, the life of children today versus you know ten, twenty, thirty exactly. years ago. It's just, um, yeah, it would be just amazing. Now, um, one of the things I want to um, bring up is that uh, we talk about the idea of. The importance of early detection of of lung cancer. So, can you, Bonnie, tell us um, um, just how significant you know um, detection, early detection is, and you know what, where you know what is early. You know, I mean, what when should people begin looking?
1: Well you know that's 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 absolutely a great question and and actually, you know early detection in lung cancer is also also um, very different than early detection, for instance, regardless of age, you can get a mammogram, anybody can go get a colonoscopy, anybody can get a prostate exam. you know, but lung cancer, you have to have x amount of years smoking and you have to be uh, I think it's uh, fifty five or older. Um, so there's still there's still the stigma wrapped around early detection, but the real answer to the question, aside from those things, getting access to to early detection is harder for lung cancer patients, but it's hugely important. And you, you look at these young ones; they go to they go to their primary physician and say, because the symptoms for lung cancer are really generally a cough, uh, you know, a cough that won't go away. Um, And they go to their doctor and say, I've been coughing, you know, for six weeks. And so the physician writes them a a script for antibiotics, and and they take those, and they go back again four weeks later and say, I am still coughing and struggling to breathe. And finally, finally, because an X-ray can't find lung cancer all the time because tumors can hide behind your heart and behind ribs, and a CT scan is what finds it because it's a 360 degree picture of your chest wall. Um, mm-hmm. So there's so many things against finding it early, but when we do find it early, it's almost curable. We keep well. people we keep people on surveillance surveillance, you know, after they've had their um, their surgery, mm-hmm. but um it's almost curable there. Uh, we have to make great change in early detection. We're working on blood, doing it in a simple blood test, maybe at some point a cheek swab uh, like we do for ancestry and things like that. So many people working on many, many good things that are you know down the road, but it's it's hugely mm-hmm. important to your to your question,
0: yeah, yeah, it has to be easier. Test. Um, yeah. So now I've heard about biomarkers. What What are biomarkers, and, and how do they fit into
1: the picture? Okay. Well, that's. I'm glad you asked that question. And and we don't call them biomarkers. We call them um, genomic profiles. And okay. we call it we call <laughs> them comprehensive genomic profile because. If you don't ask for the right thing, you won't get tested for all of the biomarkers we have. Right now we have about nine, but we have several others that are going to be coming about pretty soon and be included in the testing. But what a what what a biomarker is or a genomic um, uh, uh, a geno- genomic okay. marker that's what's driving your cancer. You can talk about smoking all you want. You can talk about all those things. But it's that biomarker that's the driver of your cancer. And right now, in the, last, in the last five years, we've created more drugs that are targets for those markers that allow a patient to just take a pill every day. They don't last forever. But in some, for some of the biomarkers, we're up to like four and five you know drugs and the patient gets up in the morning takes the pill and off they go and and very no. few side effects so that is the future that's the future of a lot of diseases but that is something lung cancer is leading the way in totally leading the way in testing for the markers and targeting the drug
0: yeah well um i just wanted to also let the listeners know that um I went to, your, to the go-to-foundation website, um, .org website yep. today, and on, on there today is an article that it says, um, I'm just going to read it, the GO2 Foundation okay. for Lung Cancer is proud to be a supporter of the recently passed Illinois State Bill HB 1779, which requires Medicaid and state-regulated private insurance plans to cover comprehensive biomarker testing when supported by medical and scientific evidence. So um, this is a case where um, the foundation gets involved in supporting legislation that's Absolutely. going to kind of move your cause forward.
1: Absolutely. We have, we have a whole crew that, that work on nothing but regulatory issues. And, you know, we cover statewide and countrywide. Absolutely. Huge.
0: Huge. Yeah.
1: Huge. You know, the insurance yep. companies really really need to partner and collaborate and you know I don't I don't want to say you know really anything negative but they're slow to the they're slow to the game and these patients need help they need help and they need it now
0: yeah um I I have uh, an opinion of insurance companies. That's just you know. Okay. It's, um, <laughs> I really don't. I just kind of want to be nice. Nah, I'm gonna play nice today.
1: Yeah.
0: We just kind of want to. We really do need to, to recognize the focus should be you know patient care and health and and Absolutely. not money. <laughs> so, but um, right, but, right. So, um, now you, there was a story, i mean in your book about Hank, the big hug basket. Can you tell us about Hank?
1: Yes, I can tell you about Hank. So his, his son was having a um, golf tournament for us, for the foundation to, to raise money for research because Hank had lung cancer, his dad. So, um, I was sitting there during the day and, and, you know, he couldn't play golf that day. So I made up my mind. I was going to sit right next to him and I was going to find out everything about him that, that I was going to know more about him than he knew about himself. So, and I was really worried about how he was walking and how he looked and he was unwell. He, he definitely was, was unwell. And I said, Hank, will you let me get a um, second opinion for you? Uh, he lives in um right next to on the border of um Colorado. I said, Well will you let me in? He said, Oh no, I've got the best I've got the best doctor in the United States I said, Well who is your doctor? So he gave me the name and I pretty much know all the best doctors in the United States for lung cancer. So I said, I've never heard of him and he said, Oh, he's on Rodeo Drive Oh, I said, So you think he's the best doctor because he's on Rodeo Drive. You know. That's not necessarily the case. So I literally, after that day was over, I called him once a week until he agreed to go see a, a physician up in, up in um, Denver, Colorado, that um, started treating him. And that was almost 10 years ago. And he was dying that day at the golf course. Because he was totally on the wrong treatment. They hadn't given him, they hadn't tested for his his comprehensive genomic profile. They hadn't done all the work that needed to be done to get him on the right uh, drug program at the right time. So I started calling him the big hug, and
2: he called me (laughs) the (laughs) big (laughs) hug. That's great. Robert, if I could add add to the Hank basket story. Um mm-hmm. Hank spent his career after he was a command sergeant major in the air force pretty high rank and after that he became a head of a outreach program that that helped uh, uh sexually and physically Abuse children. abused children um yeah. and it I raise raised this because his thing was he stood up he he was an advocate against bullies People who took advantage mm. of children, and that, and now ten for ten years he's been facing down the ultimate bully in lung cancer. So it's a it's a, it's an incredible turnaround of stories. But Hank, all these people we profiled in the living room all have a different coping mechanism. For, for some it's faith, for some it's family for some it's a combination for others it's the devotion the, you know, doing it for others for Hank, he's got something else something no one else said anything like he said, and he, this is what he used to tell the children he counseled the abused children he was trying to reach to get them to tell them him his story so he would know who was doing this to them and he would say what happened to you is bad but it wasn't your fault and it's gone because God's got it now. God took it. And that's the same thing he says about his lung cancer. God took it. God's got it now. I don't have to worry. God's mm-hmm. got it. That's Hank's basket. And every story in this book, um, including Bonnie's, has those moments. Those moments which make this not just a book about lung cancer. It's not a book about dying, as, as Bonnie would say. It's a book about living. Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And 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 uh, you know, when people say, Well what what, what what does a lung cancer patient look like? And I said, Well, if you read the book, those that's what lung cancer patients look like and it's not it's not an eighty year old man with a half a bottle of bourbon sitting in the corner with six packs of cigarettes cigarettes. Oh. That's not what lung cancer looks like. This book is what looks what what lung cancer looks like. These people, these, yeah, yeah. these the,
0: beautiful people yeah that's that's um, important to um, get out there you know um, get out the, the correct information and and you know put down um, and put to bed the, the misinformation or the myths um, surrounding um, lung cancer so uh, we only have a couple more minutes so john um, how would you say that this book or had this book changed you in any way or your beliefs or, or thoughts?
2: I think it goes back to what we were talking about, both Bonnie and I, earlier about perspective. Um, when okay. you speak to so many people who are going through so many more problems, it's something we should all keep in mind when the minutia of everyday life, the sim, the, when the gardener doesn't show up on time. When you open the garage door and you have a flat tire, and in that moment, that's the worst thing that could happen to you because now you're going to be late for wherever you were going and you've got to get AAA to come. What a big deal. ruins your day. Well, you know what? Mm-hmm. These people wake up every morning with lung cancer. And they might be doing great today, but who knows about tomorrow? And I think the answer to your question is live for today. If I, if I can live every day... You know, I don't want to say like it's the last, but I want to like, wake up in the morning and this is going to be the best day I can possibly have. I'm going to make this the best day I can possibly have. That is what I've learned from the people in this book, that you appreciate everything, not just the big things, but you appreciate the small things and you appreciate the small victories as much as you do the big ones
0: yeah now, Bonnie, you've known these people for a while, so um as far as the book what what is it that you the hope that the book will will communicate
1: you know um that that lung cancer are just very real, beautiful people, and I look at these people like family. You know, we, we talk to each other like families do. We sometimes mm-hmm. argue. We laugh together. <laughs> they're just mm-hmm. beautiful people, and they deserve to live as long as possible, as long as we can help them. Um, I love each and every one of them for, 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 for many different reasons, but they're, they're all amazing. Uh, I just I, I love them.
0: That's wonderful. Well, obviously that community is real strong, and it's, it's wonderful to see it available. Um, so I want to thank you both, Bonnie and John, for your time today. I have really enjoyed talking with you and, and learned a lot, and, and I appreciate your time.
1: That. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And and remember what I told you earlier on. So many people say, "Thank you." I just didn't know, and. Yeah. When we hang up, you know, we just we just now have more people that do know, right? Yes, we
0: do, <laughs> we do, and okay. we'll, we'll get it thank out you. there like a ripple, like a ripple. There
1: you go. So,
0: there yes, you go. thank you, <laughs> thank you very much. Again, everyone, today my special guests have been Bonnie J. Adario and John Land, um, co-authors of the book "The Living Room: A Lung Cancer Community of Courage." Um again uh you can go and find out more about Bonnie and the foundation at go to foundation.org. And that's G-O, the number two foundation.org. And there is a treasure trove of information on lung cancer there. Um definitely go check that out. And and also for more information about John and his books, you can visit Johnlandbooks.com and that's J O N Landbooks.com. And if you go through and look at his all of his books I mean there will be at least three or four or five that you'll be able to want to dive into so definitely go through and, and browse his, um, his book listing on, on his website so everyone I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show and until we meet again thank you for tuning in you've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show remember our show is available as a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. To follow our show, visit our homepage at byteradio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration
1: to your world and to the lives of those you touch.